song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibbs. Exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, as always, the uh, DDT, one of the quintessential wrestling moves, at least in the last, you know, 30, 35 years. You did have a correction you wanted to mention from our Horseman episode, right? Yeah, actually. Uh, I was listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, and they were actually uh, bringing up one of the time frames they were talking about, and it drew attention to an error that I made, so I wanted to correct it. Uh, I said on the Horseman episode that Paul Roma was in the Horseman uh, because of the Tully deal where they had signed him and then he failed the WWE drug test. That was actually, I think, two or three years earlier when he and Arn wrapped up down there. Uh, the issue when Roma joined was that they gave Tully a contract and Tully asked around the locker room and found out that he was like at the bottom end of the pay scale and just, he just refused to work. And that's actually why they brought Roma in there. So a quick correction, and I will give credit to... Uh, Conrad Thompson and Eric Bischoff for reminding me of that. So you got to check out the uh, last week's 83 weeks to hear it like I did. I mean, Paul Roma sucks no matter what. So you were, you were right in theory in the sense that he was only a replacement for Tully Blanchard, but the exact uh, reasons behind him being the replacement for Tully, which is like, holy shit, what a bad replacement. Oh yeah, certainly. Well, I don't want to be one to uh, put misinformation out there and not correct it. So uh, I wanted to make sure we touched it. Uh, and we also wanted to spend some time, just real quick, because uh, he's uh, probably both of our favorite wrestlers. He's he's my favorite wrestler. I think he is yours, too. Uh, we recently lost Big Van Vader, Leon White. And uh, I think what I was surprised was the outpouring of affection for him from people he had, like, broken the face of and people who you wouldn't expect, I guess, would be the best way. Like, he really seemed like he touched a lot of people, both people that worked with him and people that trained with him, uh, like Big E brought up the fact that he came down to Florida and, and worked with a lot of the young guys, but also people who had nothing to do with him and just admired him because when they were growing up, he was a big scary yeah, monster. Yeah, I was impressed too that uh, it brought some people out of the woodwork who, who either don't tweet or don't tweet wrestling uh, often. So like in terms of the latter, like it was interesting to see a bunch of the crew people from Boy Meets World and Baywatch come out and uh, express their sympathies and say like, hey, he was a really nice guy, especially... Uh, Oh my gosh, I'm blanking on her name. My my much younger self would kill me for this. But uh, the girl, Danielle Fischel, thank you, who played Topanga, she she actually put it really well. That like, yeah, he was a scary guy, and I'm not gonna say he wasn't a scary guy. But by the end of the day, working together, you know, I really appreciated, you know, how good he was. And uh, and Will Friedle said the same thing, which is like he was the sweetest guy on set. And actually, like, taught him how to a little bit of wrestling shit to make it look good. Right, yeah, he emphasized that, that Vader had talked to him about the idea of, like, making it look good for the camera. Like, I'm not actually being mean to you, but I'm going to do this in a forceful, loud way because it's got to look good for the camera, which is, like, when there's, you know, when you're dealing with people who are in the age or especially where they're not really sure what's going on with wrestling, like, I think that would be pretty necessary reassurance because if someone just starts picking you up and they're, like, grunting and steaming and scowling the way Vader did, you would like start struggling because you'd be scared that they were going to kill you. But you know, that he actually went out of his way to just kind of be like, look, I'm, I'm going to look a certain way and I'm going to make certain sounds and I'm going to come at you a certain way. But like, I'm, I'm right here promising that like, I'm not going to hurt you. And I think what was great about Vader was, uh, and because we, you and I, although we end up agreeing on a lot of wrestling related things, like I think wrestling or we come at wrestling for different reasons. Like I grew up on the big showy, wwe style and you, and we've talked about this in the past you are more interested in the more realistic 
I think that's fair. Right? You're more interested in a more realistic style of wrestling than I am, where I'm just like Hulk Hogan is the best. Or I, when I was for a very long time, was like Hulk Hogan is the best. I'm much more showy. I have less of a concern over any type of. I don't want to say realism, but I am just I am in love with the goofy shit in a way that I think uh, you are less inclined. Not that you hate the goofy shit, the stuff that makes professional wrestling wrestling, but you are more inclined to be towards the the grittier parts. I think is that a fair assessment? Sure, I think that's a fair assessment of the difference between you and me as fans. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I think Vader for us was great because he legitimized professional wrestling. For me, he legitimized all of the great stupid shit about professional wrestling because he was an actual tough guy. So when he did the White Castle of Fear... It was like, yeah, but he's still going to kick Sting's ass. And for you, you were just like, he's going to kick Sting's ass. <laughs> and it's going to be very enjoyable to watch. And another person I want to just call out who I was, who came out of the woodwork today was Too Cold Scorpio, who is not super active on Twitter. Like, I was looking at his page earlier today, and I mean, he's tweeted like two dozen times, you know, since, since 2014. Um, so, but, but he, I know, uh, Vader was like a senpai to him. I think he basically was like Vader's young boy in Japan. And that's why, you know, a lot of times where Vader was, Scorpio was there too, but it was kind of great to see, you know, someone who, who at least on the mainstream scene, isn't out there all the time and isn't out there on social media, but who had sort of a real unique, uh, special relationship with Vader, which like, if you looked at the two of those guys, like if you lined up a whole room of the WWE roster or the, the WCW roster, I should say, in like the early to mid nineties. And you said, which two of these guys have like a really special relationship and are like brothers and would, you know, fight to the death to save each other's lives and stuff. I don't think too many people would have picked out Vader and Scorpio. So I, I love seeing Scorpio kind of coming out of the woodwork and, and saying some stuff. I thought that was great. He could go on Boy Meets World and it would still work. I think like there's very few guys that would do that and and to not to do hard too hard of a right turn to this i think one of the people that could have done it would have been someone like jake the snake like jake the snake had that he was such a good promo that he felt like a real actor almost oh yeah jake jake could have done like the dennis hopper part in blue velvet like he has that really intense psychological creepy thing where you know he's He's like a dangerous guy, even if he doesn't look like necessarily, you know, he, he doesn't have the physique of like, he doesn't look like Matanza from uh, Lucha Underground or whatever. Like he doesn't look like the movie monster, but he is like the psychological monster, you know, like the Knight of the Hunter, Cape Fear, Robert Mitchum type bad guy. Yeah. And I think that's why in part the DDT worked so well for him as a finisher is it looked and he'll, if you read, uh, if you watch the documentary that the WWE did on him, um, I believe it's Pick Your Poison, he talks about how the DDT was kind of an accident, and it's an extremely dangerous move to do if you're not doing it in the ring, because it's a very real move. Yeah, it's really interesting that, like, it, the way most guys do it now, like, doing, like, a forward roll, like, even the big show takes a DDT that way. Like, uh, Pritchard's talked a lot about how Jake specifically told people not to take it that way. He said, do not do a forward roll. It's too dangerous. Just pancake, and I'll snap down in a way that, you know, creates the arc for us. Like, Jake specifically used to tell people, don't try to sell it on the top of your head, you'll hurt yourself. Which, I mean, number one, 
just kind of speaks to him as like the ultimate worker. <laughs> you know what I mean? To some degree, even telling the boys like, oh man, my finish will kill you. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it almost did. He really badly hurt Rick's, Ricky Steamboat after in the way he tells it, he told them, I cannot do this move on the outside. I have to do it in the ring or I'm going to hurt somebody. And they were like, no, do it on the outside. And he was like, fine. And he gave Ricky Steamboat a shoot concussion. You know something? Sometimes it's better to remain quiet and be thought a fool than it is to speak up and erase all doubt. And Steamboat, you made a mistake by turning your back on me because I don't play no games. I don't have to play games. I don't have to watch games because I can control this sport with one move. DDT. DDT. You've seen what Steamboat looks like. Black eyes, everything, head swelling up. Looks like the elephant man. That's because you administered it to him on the concrete It doesn't floor. matter. The bottom line in this sport is winners and losers. I never have been a loser. Great. Because winning is the only thing that fills the pockets. And that's what this sport's about. You understand that? I understand. <laughs> but I understand many men can make the same claim, but none of them have had to resort to behind-the-back sneak attacks, administering Holes like the DDT on a man on a concrete floor. We all do things differently. I make my own rules. Because it's much easier that way. Because that's what the move is. It's supposed to be that way. And I think it's why it got over so much. Because I, I think it's important to understand that although Jake the Snake is an incredibly popular performer, the DDT was probably as popular as him. And I think that's a different thing than, say, the RKO, which we'll get into later where the RKO is more over than Randy Orton, who is in and of himself a pretty over person, but he's not, he would not be nearly as over without the RKO, I don't think. Oh, no. It's like during during Randy Orton matches, people don't frequently chant Randy Orton. They chant RKO. It's the same if you watch late 80s, early 90s, WWF stuff, or where Jake's a hot baby face. They don't like chant for Jake or Snake or anything like that. They chant DDT. But I think he also had, and I think more so, if Jake had never invented the DDT, I still think he is Jake the Snake. He just has a different finisher, where I don't think Randy Orton becomes Randy Orton without the RKO. I feel like Jake... Was, was such a good promo and such a good worker outside the context of the DDT that the DDT was kind of the thing that made him memorable historically, but I don't know it's what made him... I think it made him successful in the sense that that was the most popular part of his act, but his act was also very popular. Yeah, and it was the perfect exclamation point on his act. Like, we, we, we yes. talk about, like, context and stuff. Like it was the perfect move for him. Jake was a tall guy, and you could tell by hearing his promos that he was smart and he had that kind of like, I don't want to be too mean, but he had that kind of like scary carny look on his face and stuff. But I mean, he was not like in great shape, even even before the time he got to the WWF. Like you could tell that he didn't necessarily have that like bar fight physical toughness the other guys did. But like the DDT, it was sort of the great, uh, just a great thing that put him over the top. It's like that heel who, you know, you know just isn't good enough. Well, how do they beat the baby faces? It's well, because he has this killer finishing move that nobody can get out of. And it's just so evil and nasty when he puts it on. Like, hence the name, the DDT, it's it's threatening. Yeah, and I think what, like you talked about, when he became a baby face, it was the thing that could get him out of any situation. Or it was the thing that, that he could do and save face in an era where they were still doing a lot of non-finishes in the top and the upper middle. There was definitely a time, if you go back and watch, where him hitting the DDT was a satisfying finish for 
any number of other screwy things going on where they would just do total non-finishes where like the guys would run from the snake or whatever. Like they could do all kinds of stuff, but as long as Jake hit the DDT, that was satisfying. And that goes back to what you said about the exclamation point. It's, it's something you see a lot in wrestling where the guy will get a moral victory and the moral victory is getting your finisher and your song playing after, even if you lose the match or get screwed over in some way or end up getting a count out instead of, or DQ instead of an actual victory. That's the way that you do it is you get the finisher on the guy. And I think, although Jake was definitely not the first person to have that happen, he is like the er example of that becoming an actual thing that is understood about a finisher for a a baby face more or less that that can be the i think it's fair to say that the ddt is the first nationally i'm trying to put it this the best way i think there's like the claw and stuff like that but i think the ddt is the first modern i think that's fair where you had moved kind of past not necessarily kayfabe but it was no longer this like completely misunderstood world. I, I feel like the DDT was the first, the first move, the first great finisher of the modern era. Yeah, I think that's probably true. The the only thing I can think that would maybe edge it out would be uh, a Mister Wrestling 2's a million dollar knee lift. But you could even argue that that's not really the modern era. That there's a line kind of you know of the from the Vince McMahon Jr. era on, let's say, or not, I know he, that's not really his name, uh, the current Vince McMahon era, it probably is. But the, the one move I would maybe give a slight edge to would be that million dollar knee lift, because that was just super over and in a lot of the same territories where Jake was early in his career. So that kind of might've been where he got the idea of like, oh man, you need a big move. There have been very famous finishers throughout history, but Jake's, and part of it is that he came to the WWF and it, it got so big. He was the first person I feel like you could sell a t-shirt and have it just be the frigging move. Like you could just write DDT on a t-shirt and people would buy it, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. You could get your nice uh, blocky 80 iron uh, 80s iron-on letters and uh, go to town. Definitely. Yeah, he. it's the first marketable finisher in a meaningful way that exists separately from the performer. And I think what's interesting about that is the ways in which the DDT influenced the history of wrestling finishers going forward because so many more of them became about attacking your head and that if you literally you chop off the top of the head you kill the snake yeah definitely which is certainly in contrast to the like i'll say like the verangana era of like the 50s and 60s where you know that there was a lot of wrestling on the mat um, and there were definitely still high spots, a lot of running the ropes and drop kicks and stuff, but like generally you took it pretty easy on each other's like head and face area. Like you think of that whole generation of wrestlers, like Baron Von Raschke, you know, uh, uh, Dick the Bruiser, uh, Vern Gagne, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, like, uh, Mad Dog Vachon, like all those guys wrestled like for 40 or 50 years. And I think part of it was because they were in an era where, you know, you weren't seeing the big move on the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's definitely an important part. I mean, from flying headbutts to the Stone Cold Stunner, the RKO, there's a lot of almost the super kick even is in some ways, obviously, like gentleman Chris Adams started the super kick, but the idea of attacking somebody's head became this, this overarching idea of like, that is a way it was also one of the first finishers that ended the match full stop. 
it was over if he hit the DDT. There are, uh, there are of course, finishers like the big boot and the leg drop and stuff like that. But, like, even if you look at the flying elbow drop in WrestleMania 5, Macho Man Randy Savage hits the elbow drop, Hulk gets up. If Jake hit the DDT, that match would have been done. Until the Undertaker match. And even in that match, it's like he was instructed to go out there and basically kill the move. And if I watched this match back recently, actually. And uh, if you watch it, you can tell that he is not a huge fan of what he is doing. Like you can tell that he doesn't necessarily have a problem putting the Undertaker over. But when it comes time to kill the DDT, he doesn't really sell frustration the way that he should that a heel should like this should be the moment where like the heels pants are around his ankles and everybody can see that he's wearing embarrassing underwear like it's that moment and he doesn't really show his ass as they say in the way that he needs to you can tell that he was so hesitant to kill the move off when the time yeah and that's what it was it was killing the move off and using a literally a supernatural character whose entire gimmick is getting up from everything to do it it wasn't even Hulk Hogan, it wasn't somebody like that who will hulk up after this shit. It is literally an undead zombie mortician. And it helped make The Undertaker's career in a meaningful way. They sacrificed the DDT to put him on this trajectory towards one of the great careers in the history of wrestling. Oh, big time. I think that of the wins kind of before we start really talking about The Undertaker's streak, so pre-whatever, like WrestleMania 20, let's say, like, that's really one of the matches where it's not a great match. And like I said, you can see Jake kind of dogging it in some way. But it's a really important win in a way that, like, Snuka was not an important win. Even though he was a big name from, a huge name from the late 70s, you know, early to mid 80s. A huge, huge top name, like, because of what a monstrous thing he did and how he sort of went into hiding for the last quarter of his life as a result of it, we've maybe perhaps rightly forgotten how huge Jimmy Snuka was, both down south in the Carolinas and in New York. Like, he maybe could have had the title, if not for murdering his girlfriend. Um, but 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 anyway, sorry, I digress. Uh, that, that win uh, over Snuka didn't really do much, because, like, Snuka was just, like, barely present uh, mentally <laughs> like, during that match when you watch it back. It just wasn't a very high-quality win. And getting that win over Jake really was something big for Undertaker because much like Bret Hart, he was coming up in that era of like Hogan and Warrior where you weren't going to get a quality win over the tippy-top guy. So you really needed to, you know, make it mean something when you beat a name. And I think that beating Jake and beating the DDT in a way was a tremendous springboard for Undertaker. Yeah, and up to that point, he had used the DDT, like we had said, as an exclamation point and as a way to put an exclamation point on his evil it was a tool of destruction which is i also think uh, it it's actually vader-esque in its like the the vader salt kind of feel to it or vader punching a dude in the face too also works of just it was understood that this was more real than the rest of the stuff you were seeing. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, I'm, I'll say of Jake, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, it would have been considered a great compliment in the era when he broke into the business. But I mean, Jake was a pretty light worker. Like when you look at his punches, when you look at the way he would give a guy a knee lift or even a gut buster, like he was uh, being pretty gentle generally with his opponent. But once again, in contrast to that, you know, the juxtaposition going back to... Uh, the final deletion episode, 
but but there's that juxtaposition of his reasonably light offense and then when he starts to gear up you know he gives them a pretty solid clothesline kind of gearing up and then just boom the ddt which is like the ultimate headshot so in in the in his comeback or in his finishing sequence there was a very deliberate escalation yeah he more so than anybody other than maybe bret hart made the five moves of doom okay even though one of the moves of doom was him doing the twirl to signal the the ddt like that was literally one of the five moves but i think what he helped popularize in a meaningful way was setting up your finisher yes and that's the way that basically all wwe matches especially main events are structured now the story is all about the finishing moves and i I think that's a, you can directly tie that to his success. I, I don't think that... And yes, Hogan, again, big boot, leg drop. But I don't think you get that. You don't get the... Because I remember distinctly, I, I, a couple of years ago, when I guess it was, there was 25... It was the 26th Royal Rumble, so five, five years ago. I watched all of the Royal Rumbles in a row. And there is a period in the beginning stages of the Royal Rumble, uh, right after Duggan wins in 88, so 89 through, I think, 93, where every single year Jake comes out and every single year they tease the DDT and it ends up being this thing where it's almost like a running gag that all people want to see when he's in the ring. (laughs) is the ddt but it's this like pavlovian response that the crowd has to jake as an idea and it's almost like a superpower that it was the first finisher that felt like a superpower to me yeah definitely i mean there is something kind of i don't want to say magical to it but yeah it it, it it's just a, a tremendous balance of both the move being over as a finish like people really believing that it was devastating and also just the, like you say, the, the ritual he had built around it, the way that he you know, would twirl his finger and hit the clotheslines and build and build to it. The way he made the match all about getting the DDT, he created a situation where all the fans expected of him was to try to get the DDT. And that's ultimately really what as a wrestler you want to do. You want to set the bar very low for yourself. You want to condition the crowd in a way where they know what they should want you to do, especially if you're a babyface. You need to figure out what should the crowd want me to do, and then your whole story is about trying to get there. And Jake was just an absolute master of that. I mean, he played the people like fiddles. I mean, you hear the story about him, you know, that uh, Steve Austin always talks about that, you know, Jake Roberts would be at Gorilla smoking a cigarette until the last second where his music played like he he was just like total uh joe cool just like uber confident just knew that he was going to go out there and have the audience in the palm of his hand because he was over in a way that just almost nobody really is over now yeah he has a profound impact on the history of wrestling despite the fact that he's not in a traditional sense particularly successful in the wwe as a main event talent he never really main evented in in, in a serious way at the hogan level at the even at the savage level like he worked with savage definitely but it was in it was still treated as a lower level feud than the hogan feud i i think out of the he's clearly i think the most popular and significant wrestler to never hold a title in the wwf and i think he is maybe the most significant wrestler outside of Hogan from that era 
it's it's either him to me or Savage, and he really did it with a finger twirl, a short arm clothesline, a knee lift, and a DDT, and maybe the best promos in the history of wrestling uh, for a character. Yeah, I think I think you're right to kind of pair him with Randy Savage in the way you just said that because I think they had in kind of the early to mid '80s they had Piper, and then when Piper got kind of fed up and realized he'd never get to the Hogan level and stepped away. They had a huge void to fill, and I think in terms of in-ring, they filled the void with Savage. And I think in terms of promos, they kind of filled the void with uh, with Jake. Not that Savage wasn't a great promo, but Jake could cut that really super intense psychological money promo. Like Savage was really always selling you the Macho Man gimmick, and he was you know, and everything was kind of filtered through that. But uh, but Jake was really the guy. I mean, you see it in the early '90s with the stuff with like Warrior and Undertaker is that they trusted him to tell the whole story in a way that Piper had been trusted to tell the whole story with Piper's pit, you know, a half decade earlier. So he was just like one of their most key guys. Like you say, even though he wasn't necessarily at the top in the title matches, he was so important to the card, both as a wrestler and as a, as a mouthpiece and a character to set other stuff up. Yeah. It was a come for the DDT stay for the Jake, the snake promo. Yeah, definitely. And and he has the incredible thing where he is just captivating, where he can he can either be breaking down hokey storyline stuff, or like I, I always kind of use the This Tuesday in Texas promo as a reference. Long-awaited encounter. We will finally see a one-on-one confrontation between Jake the Snake Roberts and the Macho Man Randy Savage. Jake Roberts, the big decision from President Jack Tunney, there will be no reptile allowed in your corner. Now, earlier I saw the Macho Man and his lovely bride, Elizabeth. Randy Savage is wired to the max. He cannot wait to get you into the ring. So what? As cold as a razor blade, as tight as a tourniquet, like the skin on a dying man. Randy Savage, the last time I seen you, you were flailing like some helpless child, drowning. Drowning from what? Drowning from the very poison that was running through your veins after that snake had chewed on that arm. For some time, he did chew. Now, you look at my eyes, Randy Savage, and you see two black holes in the sky. But you look at that snake eyes, and you'll see something so cold and so devilish and so deliberate. Yes, he takes care of what he has to, does what he has to, just like me. Your eyes, your eyes weren't even there, man. You were out. You were gone. But you know whose eyes I enjoy the most? Do you? Elizabeth. Pupils so small. So intent, so scared for the man that she loved. And what a rush I got, man. Up and down my back, it felt so good. My hair felt like it was tingling. I mean, I had goosebumps all over my body listening to you squeal for a man that could not do anything but flail around. Couldn't help himself at all, you know? And see the thing about Jack Tunney barring the snake from the corner. Let me tell you something, Jack Tunney. When I was brought into this world, I could not rob, I could not steal, I could not lie, I couldn't even cheat. But boy, did I have some help learning. You have taught me so well. So you see, it is not my fault anything that I do out there. You have given me the right to. You have almost pushed the button to make me do it. You have pulled the trigger. So anything that I do, is your fault. Snake in the corner, trust me.
trust me. That is a really ugly promo that he cuts on Savage. And like, he basically says like, I am going to hurt you physically. And then I am going to do bad things to your wife. Uh, but it, it, and, and it, it's really basically laid out, not much softer than that. And uh, it's just incredible because like I said, he's almost like the Dennis Hopper character in, uh, in Blue Velvet. Like he's just that incredibly intense psycho who's just still so captivating. Like you're on the edge of your seat. It's like the scene in the horror movie when they're going down the hallway and like, you know, something there's going to be like an awful jump scare or something, but you still find yourself like slowly leaning further and further forward on your seat. You know, that that was really what Jake could do as a talker. He was just to say he was a special promo or a unique promo is like, like those, those just those compliments aren't strong. enough. Yeah, he is. And this is going to be a really weird comparison. The only guy I've seen that has, Again, please let me explain before you yell at me when I say this. Shinsuke Nakamura reminds me a lot of Jake in the promo, as a promo in the sense that he is exceptionally good at speaking as his character. Like uh, Nakamura had a great promo this Tuesday on SmackDown where he basically explained, he makes some bullshit up about how the ref counted too fast in English and that's why he lost the match. And you're like, no, you lost the match because he killed you. But he does it in a way that fits with his character. And I feel like he plays with the confines of his character in a similar way. Though he's obviously not the promo that Jake is. I think in terms of what made Jake special in the way that a Paul Heyman is special is that he existed entirely within the context of his character. And the character was itself like a perfectly constructed wrestling character. Yeah, I think the the comparison to Shinsuke is actually really apt. And I think Shinsuke is maybe like the best heel promo they have right now or definitely one of them. Oh, I totally, I totally, he is unbelievably good at that character it's to the point where you like it's almost might get him over too much like the he did a promo with and it was a very 80s style situation uh where they did the contract signing backstage with uh him as shinsuke and aj and aj is you know, getting worked up because Shinsuke is just being an asshole, even though they've been friends for a year or like respected each other and been friends for a couple of years. And Shinsuke keeps complaining about how his pen isn't working. And like, he keeps getting AJ more and more riled up. And then like, I think AJ slaps him and then he gets escorted, escorted from the room and Shinsuke takes out a pen from his pocket. <laughs> and it's this perfect, it reminded me so much of Jake the Snake. Because that's what, it's an understanding of the psychology of what you need to be. And we've talked about this over and over again. We talked about it with Tully Blanchard especially. He was, When he wanted to be a heel, and we played the promo Dave talked about, uh, the Savage promo before Tuesday in Texas uh, a couple of minutes ago. He knew that he needed to be as evil as was humanly possible and not actually like honestly sexually assault. Like if you listen to the promo, he's basically talking about sexually assaulting uh, Savage's uh, wife, Miss Elizabeth. Like he's basically doing that and he's coming up to the cusp of it and not actually being grotesque with it, but making himself seem genuinely threatening. Yeah. I think both he and Shinsuke have the quality where the, the character is a bad person person and the character is 
someone who psychologically picks at others. Once again, maybe, maybe they know that in a fair fight, they wouldn't have the advantage. So the unfair situation that they create isn't just like pulling the ref in front of you or putting your feet on the ropes. The unfair situation they create is, you know, by psychologically torturing someone, by finding their weakness. So like in the case of, you know, Savage, obviously both in reality and in the storyline, it's sort of his his wife, Miss Elizabeth, that that character was always something, you know, was it was a way to manipulate him. Or in the case of AJ Styles, like AJ Styles is very direct and he wants to tell it like it is and he wants to get it in the ring to show who's the best. So what does Shinsuke do? He leans back in the chair and he talks really slow, which is another thing that Jake was a master of. He talks really slow and he takes his time. And like you said, he doesn't want to use their pen. He wants to use his pen. Like, so in both those cases, even though they're very different promos, very different wrestlers, it's all about just being a cruel person. It's really all about cruelty and psychologically torturing your opponent to get an unfair advantage, which is really much better wrestling fundamentals than just like putting your foot on the ropes to show that you're cheating, you know? We talk about Savage as Savage would always cut a Savage promo. And the one time he really breaks through that is the feud with Jake. He breaks Savage. It is a very clear, like, the the promo that Savage cut after the match, where he's like, you, "You, I let you hit her," is unreal good. It is to me the second I have a special place in my heart for "I live my life on the edge of a lightning bolt," and I do not apologize for that. Um, which is the, to me the best Savage promo, but the second best one is the this I believe it's this Tuesday in Texas where he's just losing his mind because something happened to Elizabeth. It is really special. It is. He got the best, and I think, although it took a while to get there, this was probably the best AJ Styles looked in the WWE. And I think it's also not a coincidence that they both have finishers that focus on your head and are kind of these flash finishers that if you get caught at the wrong time, they're going to hit you with it. And part of that is the psychological getting you off your game because they know they have this end game situation that they can beat you if you haven't beaten them yet. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I was talking about it a little bit earlier. The flash finisher is a huge part of heel psychology. I mean, it, it's one of the reasons why I think, for example, Triple H is kind of an imperfect heel, is that he always has to he always has to set up the pedigree in the middle of the ring. And like that's a very deliberate process. It's not really a move that you can get to without looking like you're getting into the pedigree. Like it's always something that I thought was kind of missing from Triple H's heel playbook, but that that flash finisher that that just, you know, it it gives the baby face that like plausible deniability. It's like, why did they lose? Well, because he's got this tremendous move where he plants you right on the top of your head. So like, how, how could you get your fingers up? You know, you probably can't even feel your fingers. How could you get your shoulder up, uh, you know, within three seconds of that? Yeah. Oh, totally. And, and it's, like I said, it's based off the idea that of getting you off kilter of getting you off balance mentally so you are not able to con you are so angry at him for doing the things that he's doing that you lose the ability to protect yourself from that finisher yeah definitely i think that's a big part of shinsuke and i think that in the in the series of matches with styles which i mean it's a conversation for a different day those matches really haven't been perfect but i thought this last one at money in the bank was was definitely their best match and it was at the point in the feud where they needed to have the best match so i think that kind of salvages all of it but i mean i think that really is kind of 
the story for Shinsuke is that, you know, Styles can have 65% of the match, but as long as Shinsuke is is focusing his attack in a way that's going to kind of set up that finish, then he's fine. Like I was saying with Jake, like Jake set the bar where all he had to do was hit the DDT. Like Shinsuke doesn't have to go out there and be the best wrestler in the world. He just has to make the fans afraid that he's going to hit the Kinshasa out of nowhere and, and beat the champion. And he also, and for, uh, let's call them what they are, for weaker psychological opponents, like for instance, Jeff Hardy, He's already completely... I, no, I mean that in the character of Jeff Hardy is somewhat fragile. It is understood that he is like a tortured artist on some... Could turn into Willow at any moment. And he did. He basically turned into Willow because Shinsuke hit him in the head so much. hit him in the head and he broke him. I, I Or woke him. Whatever, whatever they're going to go with. And I think that is the other thing is that you could structure the entire feud around the psychology of the DDT in a way that I don't know if we've ever had a move like that. I don't think we'll ever will have a move like that. Cause I think the idea of the WWE, like you mentioned earlier is to build towards the finisher, but they've also done this thing where like, if you hit a finisher, you kick out now. And I don't think that's the, I don't think that would have been the case. I, I think we have moved past the point where the DDT was the end. Uh, and I think that's what makes Jake a unique person in history is he was allowed to exist in a space where the psychology of the he like you said, he set the bar incredibly low. So the psychology of the match, which was what was important, not the work rate. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, I mean, you talk about kicking out of finishers, like part of the DDT being the DDT was that it, it was the finish. Uh, I mean, if Jake had done the DDT for a false finish and then the guy had kicked out and he had rolled the guy up and pulled the guy's trunks, well, then, you know, the DDT is just like a move that he does. It's like a, a bulldog headlock or whatever. It's just a move that happens in the match. But but part of it was the way that he built to it, the way that he made sure it always was the finish, the way that if he knew he wasn't going to go over, he just wouldn't do it. Like, you know, you the whole quote unquote, you know, the, the truism of like guys wanting to get their shit in is I think that Jake's psychology was really the psychology of restraint, um, which is kind of ironic considering other aspects of his personality. But, you know, he had a very restrained, very deliberate psychology. He really couldn't be further, you know, in terms of the spectrum from what we saw this past weekend at Money in the Bank. Like his psychology was just uh, so deliberately paced. And they say deliberate now during slow moments in the match, right? The commentators always talk about someone being deliberate. Like Jake actually was deliberate and that he took his time and everything meant everything. And I know that like, that's just something that people say about old time wrestling. But if you want to understand uh, what that really means, I think Jake is definitively the person to watch. What I think is cool, it's an easy to do move, right? <laughs> Like it's, it's a move. It's not the, and God bless John Cena. It's not the AA. You don't have to lift up anybody. No, definitely not. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, even at times when he was feuding with Andre, like the audience could conceivably believe that maybe he could hit Andre with the DDT. And, and even if you wanted to tease that, like there's a great story right there, right? Of like, oh, is his arm long enough to get around Andre's neck or whatever? Like the, there's a whole month of TV that you could write about around even more. You could write multiple months of TV around can Jake hit Andre with the DDT. Like that's the that that's what's so so great about a really over finisher like we keep coming back to. And as you said earlier, it's like 
when you go out there and, you know, now a finisher means, okay, now we're getting to the good stuff in the match. And it's like, I, I think that psychology and, and that way of structuring matches is just so broken, like to the point where it, it, when you watch a Jake Roberts match, it's, it's just everything is just so straightforward in a way that things are convoluted now. I am in agreement, even as somebody who loves the ROH, which is essentially the ROH kick out of everybody's finisher style. Like, because I grew up in the WWE, sure, like they, sure. they, they know exactly how to like placate somebody like me but at the same time you watch the old jake the snake matches and you were just like no this guy did it i don't want to say better but what he is doing is different and probably would have been long term more sustainable but they took shortcuts they said well we can't we don't need to protect people's finishers in, in a meaningful way we don't need a situation where like the perfect plex is another example of a great finisher though i think it's i don't think it's anywhere near the ddt the perfect plex if he could lock his hands was known as like, Oh, he's going to win the match. And I, I think like what has changed with that is there's no sacred cows in wrestling anymore. And I don't mean that in like, everything has to be taboo. I mean that things that they had never done before they're willing to do because they understand that like people's memories are so short. If you wait a year or two, you can just do the same shit. again. <laughs> Let's talk about John Cena slamming the big show <laughs> which they did like every whatever every 18 months or two years in john cena's career like when every time someone forgot how great john cena was what do we do oh we're gonna have john cena slam the big show <laughs> it's so true oh my god can he do it yeah he's done it he's already done it a bunch of times <laughs> a million times <laughs> it's how he won his first title I think we can end on this. Do you think that A, the DDT could have gotten over in this generation? And do you think Jake the Snake could have come in? As someone like Jake the Snake, who's a very deliberate worker, who has a very low work rate, do you think there's any space in the WWE for someone like that? Or has it is the game so much quicker now and the psychology of the game so much different that he's just, he's almost an anachronism through no fault of his own. Well, I'd like to think, and maybe this is based on my own preferences and prejudices, um, I'd like to think that someone like that would still get over now because, I mean, that, like, once again, just someone who someone who gets wrestling and knows how to get over should get over. Um, I, I don't know if it would be necessarily possible in today's environment for him to take care of his character and his move as judiciously as he was able to in the mid eighties. And I think I, I, I did want to say this. I, I know we talked about Shinsuke. I think Shinsuke is a much more athletic performer. He is God bless him. I think physically orders of magnitude better than Jake. Jake was an okay athlete. He wasn't like, he didn't make you want to throw up when he walked around the ring, but like Shinsuke's a very gifted athlete in a way that that Jake just isn't. So when I say that, I don't mean like we just talked about it. So obviously there are characters that are similar, but I don't think like you have to be a brawn level person to even contemplate working that slow. And brawn still does fucking drop kicks. Yeah, certainly. But I but I think the key aspects of Jake's psychology that we talked about earlier, which are the cruelty and the manipulation, like I think those are still really what works for heels, right? I mean, nobody wants to see, like, a, once again, we talked about it last week, right? The uh, Nobody wants to see the, the heel who just wants to conquer the world because that's paper thin and, you know, it's not going to happen. 
and you can't do the like uh, racial and ethnic stereotypes that they relied on in the past to get heat. But genuine cruelty and towards nice people will always get heat. Like people want nice things to happen to nice people. And when you put someone out there who is mean and who is manipulative and knows how to get their way, even though they know everybody else is, is, or is better than them or that they're not as good as everybody else, you know, and I, I think there will always be room for characters like that because I think that's wrestling. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a definitely fair assessment. Did you have any particular matches you think people should, or feuds you think that they should look at for Jake? Because I, I, I have one, but I'd like, I'm interested to see if you have a specific feud that you think works particularly well to explain why Jake was so great. Sure. Well, I mentioned it earlier. I like that uh, Undertaker Warrior feud from the early 90s. Because that's, you know, Jake's kind of the third wheel in that. But when you go back and watch it, he's really carrying most of the weight in terms of really being the one who tells the story. So just if you're kind of looking for examples of his psychological brilliance, I would look at that feud with uh, Warrior and uh, Undertaker and then how he and Undertaker spun off against each other, headed out of it. Like, I know it didn't do big business. It was at a time when the WWF was doing pretty poorly. But I, I think it speaks to all the things that Jake could do outside of also being a great wrestler. So that one's not necessarily as connected to the DDT, other than we said that that feud kind of ended in the DDT dying. But uh, if, you, if you're looking for some Jake, I, I like that Yeah, one. and that is for WrestleMania, the lead up to WrestleMania 8. And I'm actually going to give uh, people maybe my favorite Jake the Snake, and it's actually a babyface run, um, the Rick Martel feud leading up to WrestleMania 7. And in particular, if you if you want to understand how good Jake is at psychology, the blindfold match from WrestleMania 7, it's not a match you can watch over and over again because it's a lot of gimmicks, but it perfectly encapsulates why Jake was able to get so over despite the fact that he was not, to put it frankly, the best worker that they'd ever seen he was a serviceable worker and maybe the greatest psychologist in the history of the business to that point if not ever and i think that match encapsulates everything here's the thing and if you're an osw review listener you'll know don't watch the beginning of it when they're checking the masks just avoid that part completely and you'll be able to enjoy the match yeah definitely you can uh, you can see through the mesh on the blindfold for a, for a hot second you can definitely see him adjust it with his hand but but he still plays the psychology of it so brilliantly like i said in spite of his limitations as an athlete uh which once again he was he was a tall guy he could he could bump and do all the athleticism he needed to do wrestling but by the standards of a top tier pro wrestler he was not the greatest athlete but I mean, like the parts in that match where it's like, he's just pointing around the ring, like relying on the crowd to tell him where Martel is. And it's just like, the, once again, it's just like the crowd is eating out of his hand. He is, he is such a powerful wrestler, not as in like press landing people over his head, but just in, in command of the crowd. He, you can just feel the power and the charisma just oozing off him during that match. It's a great picnic. Yeah. And, and his promos, just look up Jake the Snake promos. He is... I think he's the best promo of all time, personally. Uh, I don't, he's not my favorite. I think he is the most gifted promo maker of all time. Um, so yeah, I, I think we can we can uh, wrap up on that as we usually do with our recommendations. To start off, I wanted to just mention our next week's topic, as I promised, which is going to be cover songs. So we kind of got into it a little bit this week 
with the idea of the DDT developing into a bunch of different things. But I, I think cover songs in particular are an interesting way to look at wrestling. Did you have anything you needed to plug in particular or just the normal stuff? Nope, just the normal stuff. Follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk and uh, keep your eyes on the wrestling estate. I actually wanted to make an announcement this week. Uh, we have started a Patreon for the podcast. I want to make very clear, very, very clear to everyone listening. We are not asking for money to keep this podcast going. We're going to do the podcast. The podcast will always be free. What I am trying to do is be able to uh, justify doing extra, spending time creating videos, creating a separate video series, um, doing extended things with the podcast, uh, creating content for Juice Make Sugar. We will always keep the podcast free. That is important to me that we, this will always be a free podcast, but we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash H W E T W. Uh, feel free. Uh, we have a couple of goals, nothing crazy. Um, if we get good response, then we might add some more things like some more goodies. Cause I, I mean, we do have a logo and stuff like that, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to mention it. No pressure, but it's out there. Um, and you can check me out at uh, The Nixer, the T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. That's on Twitter. Uh, follow me for politics news just as much as wrestling the past couple of weeks. Uh, <laughs> and you can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com or check us out on iTunes. Uh, and you can check me out and my wrestling writing at juicemakesugar.com. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, uh, I just wanted go? to quickly say uh, regarding Patreon, just speaking directly to the listeners out there, that like Nick pays for the hosting of this podcast and you know completely out of pocket. And even if I never saw a dime for this, I'd just love it if somehow uh, we were all able to come together and just make sure that like Nick isn't losing money during this podcast. So let's see if we can at least cover hosting expenses. That would be fabulous. Oh, thank you, David. Uh, yeah. Um, I have nothing left to say other than, um, well, uh, trust me. Trust me. Jake the Snake Roberts, the match is at hand. Well, well, the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Here we are at WrestleMania. And it's the biggest match of your career. Why? Because everything you stand for is on the line. Namely, the million-dollar belt. Oh, yeah. It can be yours once again. You see, all you have to do to get it back <laughs> is go through Damien and me. But you see, Damien and I don't forget. We remember all the times you made people grovel for your money. These were people far less fortunate than you. People who could use your money for essentials. And what did you do? You made fun of them. You humbled them. And you humiliated them. Well, now it's my turn. I'm going to make you beg, DiBiase. You are going to get down on your hands and knees. This time, you'll be the one that's humbled. This time, you'll be the one that's humiliated. And this time, you will be the one that grovels for the money. How appropriate <laughs> that the money you grovel for is your very own. A victim of your own greed, wallowing in the muck of avarice. Longfellow couldn't have said it better. Here among the poor, scientists, despicable, oppressed, and misinformed. Must be I for you to 